0: Chapter Six of Our Mister Wren: The Romantic Adventures of a Gentleman by Sinclair Lewis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don W. Jenkins. Our Mister Wren by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Six. HE IS AN ORPHAN. Sadly clinging to the plan of the walking trip he was to have made with Morton, Mr. Wren crossed by ferry to Birkenhead, quite unhappily, for he wanted to be discussing with Morton the quaintness of the uniformed functionaries. He looked for the Marion half the way over. As he walked through Birkenhead, bound for Chester, he pricked himself on to note red brick house-rows almost shocking in their lack of high front stoops. ALONG THE COUNTRY ROAD HE REFLECTED, WOULDN'T MORTY ENJOY THIS? farmyard ALL PAVED, HAYSTACK WITH A LITTLE ROOF ON IT, KITCHEN-STOVE STUCK IN A KIND OF FIREPLACE, FOREIGN AS THE DEUCE. BUT MORTON WAS OFF SOME PLACE, IN A DARKNESS WHERE THERE WEREN'T THINGS TO ENJOY. MR. Wrenn HAD LOST HIM FOREVER. ONCE HE HEARD HIMSELF WISHING THAT EVEN TIM, THE HATTER, OR GOOD OLD MCGARVER WERE ALONG a scene so british that it seemed proper to enjoy it alone he did find in a real garden party with what appeared to be a real curate out of a story in the strand passing teacups but he passed out of that hot glow into a cold plodding that led him to chester and a dull hotel which might as well have been in bridgeport or hoboken he somewhat timidly enjoyed Chester the early part of the next day, docilely following a guide about the walls, gaping at the mill on the D, and asking the guide two intelligent questions about Roman remains. He snooped through the galleried streets, peering up dark stairways set in heavy masonry that spoke of historic sieges, and imagined that he was historically besieging. For a time Mr. Wren's fancies contented him. He smiled as he addressed glossy red and green postcards to Lee Teresa and Goate, Cousin John and Mr. Gilfogle, writing on each a variation of, "'Having a splendid trip. This is a very interesting old town. Wish you were here.' Pantingly, he found a panorama showing the hotel where he was staying, or at least two of its chimneys, and marking it with a heavy cross, and the announcement, "'This is my hotel where I am staying.' He sent it to Charlie Carpenter." He was at his nearest to greatness at Chester Cathedral. He chuckled aloud as he passed the remains of a refectory of monastic days, in the close, where knights had tied their romantically pawing chargers, just like he'd read about in a story about the olden times. He was really there. He glanced about and assured himself of it. He wasn't in the office. He was in an English cathedral close but shortly thereafter he was in an English temperance hotel, sitting still, almost weeping with the longing to see Morton. He walked abroad, feeling like an intruder in the lively night-crowd. In a tap-room he drank a glass of English porter, and tried to make himself believe that he was acquainted with the others in the room, to which theory they gave but little support. All this while his loneliness shadowed him. Of that loneliness one could make many books. How it sat down with him, how he crouched in his chair, bespelled by it, till he violently rose and fled, with loneliness for companion in his flight. He was lonely. He sighed that he was lonely as fits. Lonely, the word obsessed him. Doubtless he was a bit mad, as are all the isolated men who sit in distant lands longing for the voices of friendship next morning he hastened to take the train for oxford to get away from his loneliness which lolled evilly beside him in the compartment he tried to convey to a stodgy north countryman his interest in the way the seats faced each other the man said oh i insultingly and returned to his manchester newspaper feeling that he was so offensive that it was a matter of honour for him to keep his eyes away mr wren dutifully stared out of the door till they reached oxford there is a calm beauty to new college gardens there is mr wren observed something simply slick about all these old quadrangleses crossed by summering students in short flappy gowns but he always returned to his exile's room where he now began to hear the new voice of shapeless nameless fear fear of all this alien world that didn't care whether he loved it or not he sat thinking of the cattle-boat as a home which he had loved but which he would never see again HE HAD TO USE FORCE ON HIMSELF TO KEEP FROM HURRYING BACK TO LIVERPOOL WHILE THERE STILL WAS TIME TO RETURN ON THE SAME BOAT. NO, HE WAS GOING TO STICK IT OUT, SOMEHOW, AND GET on to THE HANG OF ALL THIS HIGHBROW BUSINESS. THEN HE SAID, OH, DARN IT ALL, I FEEL ROTTEN. I WISH I WAS DEAD. THOSE, SIR, ARE THE WINDOWS OF THE APARTMENT ONCE OCCUPIED BY WALTER PATER, SAID THE CULTURED AMERICAN AFTER WHOM HE WAS TRAILING mr wren viewed them attentively and with shame remembered that he didn't know who walter pater was but oh yes now he remembered walter was the guy who'd murdered his whole family so aloud well i guess Oxford's sorry walt ever come here all right my dear sir mr pater was the most immaculate genius of the nineteenth century lectured dr mittyford the cultured american severely mr wren had met mittyford Ph.D., near the barges had upon polite request still more politely lent him a match and seized the chance to confide in somebody mittyford had a bald head neat eyeglasses a fair family income a chatty good-fellowship at the faculty club and a chilly contemptuousness in his rhetoric classroom at leland stanford junior university he wrote poetry which he filed away under the letter p in his letter file dr mittyford grudgingly took mr Wren about to teach him what not to enjoy He pointed at Shelley's rooms as at a certificated angel's feather, but Mr. Wren writhingly admitted that he had never heard of Shelley, whose name he confused with Max O'Rell's, which Dr. Middyford deemed an error. Then Pater's window. The doctor shrugged. Oh, well, what could you expect of the proletariat? Swinging his stick aloofly, he stalked to the Bodleian and vouchsafed, That, sir, is the Aeschylus Shelley had in his pocket when he was drowned. Though he heard with sincere regret the news that his new idol was drowned, Mr. Wren found that Aeschylus left him cold. It seemed to be printed in a foreign language, but perhaps it was merely a very old book. Standing before a case in which was an exquisite book in a queer wrigglesome language, bearing the legend that from this volume Fitzgerald had translated the Rubaiyat, Dr. Mittyford waved his hand and looked for thanks. "'Pretty book,' said Mr. Wren. "'And did you note who used it?' "'Uh, yes,' he hastily glanced at the placard. "'Mr. Fitzgerald. "'Say, I think I read some of that rubaiyat. "'It was something about a Persian kitten. "'I don't remember exactly.' Dr. Mittyford walked bitterly to the other end of the room. About eight in the evening Mr. Wren's landlady knocked with, "'There's a gentleman below to see you, sir.' "'Me?' blurted Mr. Wren. He galloped downstairs, panting to himself that Morton had at last found him. He peered out and was overwhelmed by a motor-car, with Dr. Mittyford waiting in a handsome fur coat, goggles and gauntlets, centered in the car-lamp light that loomed in the shivery evening fog. "'Gee, just like a hero in a novel,' reflected Mr. Wren. "'Get on your things,' said the pedagogue. "'I'm going to give you the time of your life.' Mr. Wren obediently went up and put on his cap he was excited yet frightened and resentful at being dragged into all this highbrow business which he had resolutely been putting away the past two hours as he stole into the car dr mittyford seemed comparatively human remarking i feel bored this evening i thought i would give you a nuit blanche how would you like to go to the red unicorn at brempton one of the few untouched old inns that would be nice said mr Wren, unenthusiastically His chilliness impressed Dr. Mittyford, who promptly told one of the best of his well-known whimsical yet scholarly stories. "'Ha-ha!' remarked Mr. Wren. He had been saying to himself, "'By golly, I ain't going to even try to be a society guy with him no more. I'm just going to be me, and if he don't like it he can go to the Dickens.' So he was gentle and sympathetic, and talked West Sixteenth Street slang to the rhetorician's lofty amusement." the tap-room of the red unicorn was lighted by candles and a fireplace that is a simple thing to say but it was not a simple thing for mr wren to see as he observed the trembling shadows on the sanded floor he wriggled and excitedly murmured gee gee whittakers the shadows slipped in arabesques over the dust-gray floor and scampered as bravely among the rafters as though they were in such a tale as men told in believing days Rustics and smocks drank ale from tankards, and in a corner was snoring an ear-ringing peddler with his beetle-black head propped on an oilcloth pack. Stamping in, chilly from the ride, Mr. Wren laughed aloud. With a comfortable feeling, on the side toward the fire, he stuck his slight leg straight out before the old-time settle, looked devil-may-care, made delightful ridges on the sanded floor with his toe, and clapped a pewter pot on his knee with a small emphatic wop after about two and a quarter tankards he broke out say that peddler guy there don't he look like he was a gypsy you know sneaking through the hedges around the manor house to steal the earl's daughter huh yes you're a romanticist then i take it yes i guess i am kind of like to read romances and stuff he stared at mittyford beseechingly but say say i wonder why uh, somehow i haven't enjoyed oxford and the rest of the places like i ought to See I'd always thought I'd be simply nutty about the quadrangles and stuff but I'm afraid they're too highbrow for me I hate to own up but sometimes I wonder if I can get away with this travelling stunt Midiford the magnificent had mixed ale and whiskey punch he was mellowly instructive do you know I've been wondering just what you would get out of all this you really have a very fine imagination of a sort you know but of course you're lacking in a certain factual basis as i see it your metier would be to travel with a pleasant wife the two of you hand in hand so to speak looking at the more obvious public buildings and plesuances avenues and plesuances there must be a certain portion of the tripper class which really has the ability for to admire and for to see dr Mittyford finished his second toddy and with a wave of his hand presented to mr wren the world and all the plesuances thereof to see though not of course to admire Mittyfordianly. BUT WHAT ARE YOU TO DO NOW ABOUT OXFORD? WELL, I'M AFRAID YOU'RE TAKEN INTO CAPTIVITY A BIT LATE TO BE TRAINED FOR THAT SORT OF THING. DO ABOUT OXFORD? WHY, GO BACK. MASTER THE WORLD YOU UNDERSTAND. BY THE WAY, HAVE YOU SEEN MY BOOK ON Saxon DERIVATIVES? NOT THAT I'M PREJUDICED IN ITS FAVOR, BUT IT MIGHT GIVE YOU A GLIMMERING OF WHAT THIS difficile THING, CULTURE, REALLY IS. THE RUSTICS WERE DRONING A CHURCH ANTHEM. THE GLOW OF THE ALE WAS IN MR. Wren. He leaned back entirely happy, and it seemed confusedly to him that what little he had heard of his learned and affectionate friend's advice gratefully confirmed his own theory that what one wanted was friends, a nice wife, folks. Yes, sir, by golly, it was awfully nice of the doc. He pictured a tender girl in golden brown back in New York he so much desired to see who would await him evenings with a smile that was kept for him. Homie, that was what he was going to be. He happily and thoughtfully ran his finger about the rim of his glass ten times. "'Time to go, I'm afraid,' Dr. Middiford was saying. Through the exquisite haze that now filled the room, Mr. Wren saw him dimly as a triangle of shirt-front and two gleaming ellipses for eyes, his dear friend the Doc. As he walked through the room, chairs got humorously in his way, but he good-naturedly picked a path among them, and he fell asleep in the motor-car. All the ride back he made soft mouse-like sounds of snoring.' When he awoke in the morning with a headache, and surveyed his unchangeably dingy room, he realized slowly, after smothering his head in the pillow to shut off the light from his scorching eyeballs, that Dr. Mittyford had called him a fool for trying to wander. He protested, but not for long, for he hated to venture out there among the dreadfully learned colleges and try to understand stuff written in letters that looked like crow-tracks. He packed his suitcase slowly, feeling that he was very wicked in leaving Oxford's opportunities mr Wren rode down on a tottenham court road bus viewing the quaintness of london life was a rosy ringing valiant pursuit for he was about to ship in a mediterranean steamer laden chiefly with adventurous friends the bus passed a victoria containing a man with a real monocle a newsboy smiled up at him the strand roared with lively traffic but the grey stonework and curtained windows of the Anglo-Southern Steamship Company's office did not invite any Mr. Wrens to come in and ship, nor did the hall-porter, a beefy person with a huge collar and sparse, painfully sleek hair, whose eyes were like cold-boiled mackerel, as Mr. Wren yearned, "'Please, uh, please, will you be so kind, and tell me where I can ship as a steward for the med?' "'None needed.' Or Spain, I just wanted to get any kind of a job at first, peeling potatoes, or it don't make any difference. None needed, I say, my man. The porter examined the hall clock extensively. But Wren suddenly popped into being and demanded, Look here, you. I want to see somebody in authority. I want to know what I can ship as. The porter turned round and started. All his faith in mankind was destroyed by the shock of finding the fellow still there. Nothing, I told you. No one needed.' "'Look here, can I see somebody in authority, or not?' The porter was privately esteemed a wit at his mother-in-law's. Waddling away, he answered, "'Or not?' Mr. Wren drooped out of the corridor. He had planned to see the Tate Gallery, but now he hadn't the courage to face the difficulties of enjoying pictures. He zigzagged home, mourning. "'What's the use? And I'll be hung if I'll try any other offices, either. The Icy Mitt, that's what they hand you here.' SOME DAY I'LL GO DOWN TO THE DOCKS AND TRY TO SHIP THERE. PROBABLY. GEE, I FEEL ROTTEN. OUT OF ALL THIS FOG OF UNFRIENDLINESS APPEARED THE WAITRESS AT THE ST. BRASTON Cocoa HOUSE. FIRST AS A HUMAN BEING TO WHOM HE COULD TALK, SECOND AS A WOMAN. SHE WAS IGNORANT AND VULGAR. SHE MISUSED ENGLISH cruelly. SHE WORE GREASY COTTON GARMENTS, PLANTED HER LARGE FEET ON THE FLOOR WITH FIRM CLUMSINESS, AND ALWAYS LAUGHED AT THE WRONG CUE IN HIS DIFFIDENT JESTS. BUT SHE DID LAUGH, She did listen while he stammered his ideas of meat-pies and St. Paul's and aeroplanes and Shelley and fog and tan shoes. In fact, she supposed him to be a gentleman and a scholar, not an American. He went to the cocoa house daily. She let him know that he was a man and she a woman, young and kindly, clear-skinned and joyous-eyed. She touched him with warm elbow and plump hip, leaning against his chair as he gave his order. To that he looked forward from meal to meal, though he never ceased harrowing over what he considered a shameful intrigue. That opinion of his actions did not keep him from tingling one lunch-time, when he suddenly understood that she was expecting to be tempted. He tempted her without the slightest delay, muttering, "'Let's take a walk this evening.' She accepted. He was shivery and short of breath while he was trying to smile at her during the rest of the meal and so he remained all afternoon at the Tower of London, though he very well knew that all this history, kings and guillotines and stuff, demanded real wren thrills. They were to meet on a street corner at eight. At seven-thirty he was waiting for her. At eight-thirty he indignantly walked away, but he hastily returned and stood there another half-hour. She did not come. When he finally fled home he was glad to have escaped the great mystery of life, then distressingly angry at the waitress, and desolate in the desert stillness of his room. He sat in his cold, hygienic, uncomfortable room on Tavistock Place, trying to keep his attention on the tick, 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 tick of his two-dollar watch, but really cowering before the vast shadowy presences that slunk in from the hostile city. He didn't in the least know what he was afraid of, The actual Englishman, whom he passed on the streets, did not seem to threaten his life, yet his friendly watch and familiar suitcase seemed the only things he could trust in all the menacing world as he sat there, so vividly conscious of his fear and loneliness, that he dared not move his cramped legs. The tension could not last. For a time he was able to laugh at himself, and he made pleasant pictures, Charlie Carpenter telling him a story at droobles, Morton companionably smoking on the top deck, Lee Theresa flattering him during an evening walk. Most of all, he pictured the brown-eyed sweetheart he was going to meet somewhere, sometime. He thought with sophomoric shame of his futile affair with the waitress, then forgot her as he seemed almost to touch the comforting hand of the brown-eyed girl. "'Friends, that's what I want. You bet. That was the work he was going to do. Make acquaintances.' a girl who would understand him, with whom he could trot about, seeing department store windows and moving picture shows. It was then, probably, hunched up in the dowdy chair of faded upholstery that he created the two phrases which became his formula for happiness. He desired somebody to go home to evenings, still more, someone to work with and work for. It seemed to him that he had mapped out his whole life. He sat back satisfied and caught the sound of emptiness in his room, emphasized by the stilly tick of his watch. "'Oh, Morton!' he cried. He leaped up and raised the window. It was raining, but through the slow splash came the night-rattle of hostile London. Staring down, he studied the desolate circle of light a street-lamp cast on the wet pavement. A cat, grey as dishwater, its fur worn off in spots, lean and horrible, sneaked through the circle of light like the spirit of unhappiness, like London's sneer at solitary Americans in Russell's Square rooms. Mister Wren gulped. Through the light skipped a man and a girl, so little aware of him that they stopped, laughingly wrestling for an umbrella, then disappeared, and the street was like a forgotten tomb. A hansom swung by; the hoof sharp and cheerless. The rain dripped. Nothing else. Mr. Wren slammed down the window. He smoothed the sides of his suitcase, reckoned the number of miles it had traveled with him. He spun his watch about on the table and listened to its rapid mocking speech. Friends, 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 friends. Sobbing, he began to undress, laying down each garment as though he were going to the scaffold. When the room was dark, the great shadowy forms of fear thronged unchecked about his narrow dingy bed. Once during the night he woke. Some sound was threatening him. It was London coming to get him and torture him. The light in his room was dusty, mottled, grey, lifeless. He saw his door half ajar and for some moments lay motionless, watching stark and bodiless heads thrust themselves through the opening and withdraw with sinister alertness while he sprang up and opened the door wide. But he did not even stop to glance down the hall for the crowd of phantoms that had gathered there. Some hidden manful scorn of weakness made him sneer aloud, DON'T BE A BABY EVEN IF YOU ARE LONELY. His voice was deeper than usual, and he went to bed to sleep, throwing himself down with a coarse, wholesome scorn of his nervousness. He awoke after dawn, and for a moment curled in happy wriggles of satisfaction over a good sleep. Then he remembered that he was in the cold and friendless prison of England, and lay there panting with desire to get away, to get back to America, where he would be safe. He wanted to leap out of bed, dash for the Liverpool train, and take passage for America on the first boat. But perhaps the officials in charge of the immigrants and the steerage, and of course a fellow would go steerage to save money, would want to know his religion and the color of his hair, as bad as trying to ship. They might hold him up for a couple of days. There were quarantines and customs and things of which he had heard. Perhaps for two or even three days more he would have to stay in this nauseating prison land. This was the morning of August 3, 1910, two weeks after his arrival in London and 22 days after victoriously reaching England, the land of romance. End of Chapter Six, read by Don W. Jenkins, Rancho San Diego, California,